Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6, continuing our study of this portion of God's Word. It's a book about, I mean, it's a story in 2 Samuel 6 about a, a sentimental item being moved. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. Reminded me of a sentimental item. I don't have very many sentimental items. I'm not a sentimental kind of guy. I don't care about keeping stuff. I'm the kind of guy that likes to throw stuff out constantly. And so any of the sentimental items we have at our home that are from my childhood or my past, it's because my wife was thoughtful enough to think about getting them when my mom passed away or my folks moved to a retirement home. When they were up for grabs, she thought about some of those items. Well, one that she wanted and we have is a pair of small ladies' uh, handmade wooden Japanese shoes. And they're sentimental because they were my mom's. And my mom got them while she was in Japan. Um, my grandfather was stationed over there in the U.S. Army right after the World, uh, World War II. He was part of the troops doing the cleanup in Japan. And my mom actually graduated from Okinawa High School. Um, during that time <clears throat> and so she picked up a pair of the the uh, handmade Japanese shoes during that time and um, now, now, now we have them when I see those shoes though um, they mean something to me they wouldn't mean to you they're 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 my special little treasure in that sense they mean the doom and destruction of World War II my mom would not have been in Japan had it not been from, for that, that bomb being thrown there, uh, for the cleanup needed there, for the troops being moved there. So I, I, I see those shoes and I think of doom and destruction. But then I also think of my mom's little feet and how they, they would fit in these little wooden shoes and her delight and desire to ballroom dance and jitterbug and... So I, I see the dancing um, in those shoes as well as the doom. So they take me from, from destruction to celebration. And as I thought about that, I said, well, that's what's happening in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6 because we have this, this item there called the Ark of the Covenant, and it's sentimental to us as believers. It means something to us. It wouldn't mean much to some other people who happen to see it. But to us, it means that a man reaches out his hand and he's destroyed. It's doom just because he touches it. And others dance and celebrate because it reminds them of the very presence of God with the people of God. So it's, it's a very sentimental article for believers in the faith. And I want us to see this morning that sentiment that we have with the Ark of the Covenant that it's, 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 it reminds us of doom and destruction, but it also reminds us of celebration. What's in this passage for you and me? I, I think this passage has been left here to, to show us how very relevant and real and authentic and interested God is in His people. And how we have this relationship with Him that could certainly lead us to doom, but it can also lead us to great celebration and dancing and joy just because he is with us. So it's a great passage for us to look at. I want us to, to kind of walk through it this morning verse by verse. Let's begin verse 1 and see this, this story of, that God's revealing to us about the moving of the ark. The ark of the covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 1. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. 30,000. If he takes 30,000 in the war, now he's taking 30,000 to the ark. And David arose and he went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. Now let's stop there and think about this. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal. This is not a deal you just turn over to do two guys in a truck. This is something that's so big you gather 30,000 of your most significant leaders. 
and say, hey, we're going to get the Ark of the Covenant. It's down in Kiriath-Jerim. It's also called Baal Judah. And we're going to go down there and get it, and we're going to bring it to this new central location for our kingdom, the city of David, to Jerusalem. So he gathers all of these significant leaders that he might have taken into something as significant as a war against the Philistines. Now he's taking them down to just get a little box and to bring it back up. Now, it's interesting, they say, this box has a name, the name, very name of the Lord of hosts. There's a, there's a clue there. This name, it reminded me of the third commandment. You know the third commandment, not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why? Because it's holy. And he's beginning to introduce us to a concept here. This, this ark, this little box is holy. It's, it's a sacred artifact. It's it's something that's set apart. It has on it the very holiness of God. He is, goes on to say, the one who's enthroned above it. Uh, on top of the, the box was the mercy seat. On top of that, the cherubim. On um, top of that, God. This very presence of God is wrapped up in this ark. So yeah, this is... This is huge. This is very significant. The focus here is the very presence of God. When we pick up this box and move it to the city of David, to Jerusalem, we're, we're seeking to bring in this, this symbol of the, the rule of God. He is over us. He's enthroned. We're seeking to bring in the mercy seat, the reconciler of His people. We're bringing in this, this whole concept, the mercy seat, Christ's priestly work, His sacrifice for us. We're bringing in the only artifact that contains the Ten Commandments. This is where they place the two tablets of stone. So we're, we're bringing in the whole concept that we are ruled by the Word of God. And His law is what leads us and directs us in all that we do for this new kingdom. The kingdom under David. So all of that's wrapped up into this move. It's very significant. It's a big deal. And we need to, to understand it that way. Let me go through those kind of three concepts of, of the ark of God. It's, it's bringing to us the current rule, reconciliation and revelation of God. First of all, think about the rule. Look at First Chronicles 28, verse 2. So turn over a couple books. Here we see it described. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 2 says, Then King David rose to his feet and he said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations to build it. So he wanted to build a temple. Solomon gets to build it. David says, I made preparation. But notice his description of the Ark of the Covenant. He says, another name is the footstool of our God. This is how David saw it. This is where King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of the heavens and earth, this is where he rested his feet, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was to him like a footstool. So David is saying, when I see this, this box, this Ark, I see God enthroned above it. He's on this high and mighty throne, and this is at his feet. This is the footstool of God. So he certainly saw the rule of God, and he was under that rule. And he wanted to bring that ark to his throne, to his kingdom, as a sign that he was a king with a heart after God that was under authority. And that authority is God himself. You know, what, what do we have as that? God is with us. He is constantly with us, maybe the Lord's Supper, and maybe we forget that aspect of the Lord's Supper, that constant reminder that we as a people, we see Christ's priestly work in the Lord's Supper, but we, we need to see ourselves as those who must surrender to the kingly work of Christ. And so every time we take of the Lord's Supper, we're surrendering to Christ. I must have His rule. I must have His rule over sin and over the grave and over death. 
And David understood that. He wanted that constant reminder that God was enthroned. He was under authority. Second, we see from this arc, this, this theme of reconciliation. Let me give you a, a kind of a survey. Look, look back at Leviticus 16. When they uh, built the ark and started to use it in uh, worship, Leviticus 16 Verse 14 and 15. This is what they were to do on the day of atonement. Leviticus 16, verse 14. Moreover, the priest, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. The mercy seat is on the ark. Sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, in front of the mercy seat. So you see there, uh, you're beginning to see there's something very significant about blood, and that there's blood between us and God. That the blood is being offered as an atonement for our sins. Look over at chapter 17 of Leviticus, verse 11, a key verse. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So this is God's law, God's principle which is where we get there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Blood had to be shed. There had to be a sacrifice to, as a substitute for us. Blood had to be sprinkled, not only on us, but sprinkled on the mercy seat. It's connecting us to God. And it's like, this is what we're offering you, Lord, this sacrifice for our sins. Will you have mercy? Will you forgive us? And so the priest was doing this work, knowing the significance of the blood there for that work. When you uh, don't miss this, look at First Peter chapter one. So I mean, I just don't see people bring this verse up much. This command given us in First Peter about blood being sprinkled. Uh, so let me share it with you. First Peter. Then I want to tie, tie some of this together for you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, that's the good news. Go back to verse 2, see what we've missed. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and, here's the phrase we miss, be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. We don't get the grace and peace in fullest measure unless we are sprinkled by the blood of Christ. How do we get that? This is one of these significant things. See, the priest was doing it in the Old Testament. You didn't get to go into the Holy of Holies with the priests. He only went in there. And he took blood in there as a sacrifice for you. And he come out and tell you about it. So you might not get to see the blood of, of Jesus. But it's been sprinkled for you. Someone has gone into the Holy of Holies. And he's gone in with the blood of Jesus. And we must be sprinkled by that blood. Or there's no mercy and grace in fullest measure. That's what Peter is saying here. Peter understood what priests were doing as they went into the, the Holy of Holies and got in front of the ark of God and the mercy seat and sprinkled the blood. They knew there, there had to be this reconciliation between us and God or we were doomed. Now, the priests knew that. Moses knew that. Uh, 
let me let me take you back to Moses, Moses chapter, because uh, we got a baptism next week, and my thoughts are, are are with that somewhat as well. But Exodus twenty four. Here is Moses introducing to the people of God the covenant that we have with God, and as he introduces that covenant, he sprinkles them with blood. So Moses took, uh, excuse me, Exodus 24, verse 8. So Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Like, catch this. This is significant. I'm sprinkling you. I'm, I, he's using a hyssop branch. So he's got six million people in front of him. I mean, he dips this hyssop branch into the blood and he's sprinkling the people of God. And as he's sprinkling them, he's saying, now stop and notice why I'm doing this. This is significant. You must have the blood. You must be sprinkled with the blood to be cleansed, to be reconciled, to, to enter into this covenant agreement we have with God. This is his law. This is the way it happens. And from there, the priests start carrying the tabernacle, and they're doing this constantly through the Old Testament life. When it is announced that Christ is coming, look at Isaiah 52. Isaiah 53, the huge chapter on Christ being our suffering servant, going to sacrifice himself like a lamb before the slaughter. It says this just before that. Isaiah 52, verse 15. Thus he, that's speaking of Christ... He will sprinkle many nations. Really? Why? Because he's the priest. He's the king. He's the one coming, and he's not just going to be the God of Israel. He's going to be the God of the world, international. And he's going to sprinkle not just you guys. He's going to sprinkle the nations. And the nations, as Peter, you've already seen, has said, must be sprinkled by his blood. So when you get to John the Baptist in John chapter 1, and the, the eagle eyed Pharisee hunters come to him and they say, John, why are you baptizing? Are you the prophet? Prophet, who's that? Moses, the great prophet in the Old Testament, prophet Moses. Because Moses was sprinkling the people. Are you out here like him? No, I'm not him. Are you the Christ? Why would they say that? Because Christ is coming to sprinkle the nations. How do we baptize, folks? We baptize just like Moses, just like Christ, and just like John the Baptist. We sprinkle the nations, the people of God. We must be seeing this, this sign God has given us of heaven coming down upon us because we need mercy. It's not about us doing something. We have a holy God who must cover us with his, with his blood, with his atonement for us. And that's what they saw every time they went into the Holy of Holies, this need for the blood to be on the mercy seat. And for them to be pleading with God to reconcile us to him, to be sprinkled by his blood. Well, I want you to see the significance of reconciliation. We can't have this relationship with God without something being done to our sin and us being forgiven of it. Well, the ark, I got to get back there, right? It's about rule. It's about reconciliation. It's about revelation. Uh, look at Exodus 25, verse 21. Exodus 25, verse 21, just tells you the facts in the ark. Exodus 25, 21 says, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. And the testimony was the Ten Commandments. You can read on and see that's, that was what was there. So in the ark is all of the rule of God, the Ten Commandments. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to bring the ark into Jerusalem because you're bringing God's rule, you're bringing God's footstool, you're bringing reconciliation, you're bringing God's commandments. Uh, 
you're living with the living God. What I want you to see is one thing, chapter 5, to push the enemy back. They pushed people out of Jerusalem. They fought the Philistines. They pushed the enemy back. David said, it's a big thing for us to bring the ark in. It's just as big. It's even bigger. And we need to see that as well. Sometimes we get all wrapped up in our conflicts. Chapter 5, war. And conflicts are big, but the wars we have with those who are against us is not ever really as big as the worship we have with the God who is for us. And that's what we're seeing in chapter 5 and chapter 6. You have this conflict, but the conflict gets you to worship, and the worship is with the God who is with us and for us. And David wanted them to see that significance by gathering so many people around the ark to bring it to Jerusalem. What matters most to us? Our conflicts or our worship? We get to do something extremely significant every Lord's Day, every Sunday. It's like, we need to gather people. If we would gather them say, hey, I want my buddies to go with me to the football game. It's like, hey, I want you to just see something even more significant. And that is the worship of a God who is with us. Who atones for our sins. Who rules over us. Reconciles us to himself. That kind of significance I hope you catch it here. It's big. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. I'll tie it together with this passage. I hope, I was, I was, uh, as I looked at this passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 9, I, I said to the Lord in my prayers, you can pray for me on this. I said, Lord, you know, I have been wanting to preach the book of Hebrews all my life. I took several classes in college and in seminary on the book of Hebrews in preparation for the time I'll get to preach it. All of that college and seminary training is going to go to waste if I don't get to preach this book. I've never gotten to preach this book. I've just I've never found time for it. But it's so significant because it, it ties the Old and the New Testament together. Um, look at Hebrews chapter 9. Let me start reading it. Uh, verse 8. I'll give you a, a, a quick sermon on, on this passage. How about that? Hebrews 9, verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this. Showing This is significant. Don't miss it. The Holy Spirit saying it's significant. He's signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. I think Hebrews is write, writing, pre, the author of Hebrews is writing, prior to 70 A.D., the temple was still there, hadn't been destroyed. They still went into it. He says, as long as that's standing, you're not going to see the full ramifications of this, but you're, you're about to, and we can. Verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. So if you just use that old temple, old sacrificial system, that's not really going to do it for you. He's getting to the fact you're going to need Jesus. Verse 10. Since they relate only to food and drink and various baptisms. Now, one of the most disappointing translations I've ever seen that bothers me is this one. Just about every place you see the Greek word baptismo, it's not, it's not, you don't get, give the meaning to that word. You just give the transliteration. Baptismo, you find it show up in the English as baptism. Here, the Greek word baptismo shows up as washings. I'm thinking, what? Why did you get... Yeah, baptism can mean washing. It can mean dipping. It can mean pouring. It can mean sprinkling. Why did you give a meaning of the term when everywhere else you give the term? And it confuses us. But you'll find in chapter 9, three more times, to describe these various baptisms are described by sprinklings. And it's connecting us to the Old Testament sprinkling. So we're missing something when we, we don't see that. But these, these various Old Testament washings, how are they done? He says, since these Old Testament food and drink and various washings or baptisms, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. 
When's the time of Reformation? Verse 11. But when, here it is, when Christ appeared as a high priest, where does the priest get to go? The high priest gets to go into the Holy of Holies, before the ark, the mercy seat. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves and through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, what do you do with those? You sprinkle those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, what do you do with that? You sprinkle it, it's the same context. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, what our Old Testament brothers and sisters had to do on the Day of Atonement, they had to go into the Holy of Holies, they had to go before the mercy seat, they had to sprinkle with the blood of bulls and goats. It says Christ is going to do away with all that. People aren't going to understand it until Christ destroys the temple and destroys all those sacrifices, and then they're going to see, oh, Christ is our once and for all sacrifice. His blood is now being sprinkled upon us, and it's eternal redemption. That's what the Ark of the Covenant was pointing to, that we always need redemption in God. And only Christ could provide it. The author of Hebrews connects that for us. So as you read 2 Samuel 6, begin to see how significant this Ark of the Covenant is because it's pointing to Christ and all he fulfills for us in satisfying God with a blood sacrifice. When Christ went into the Holy of Holies, he says, I bring my own blood. I don't bring the blood of bulls and goats. I bring my blood. And I put my blood on the mercy seat. And my blood, if that blood of bulls and goats sanctified folks, how much more does my blood make you holy and sanctified and cleansed so that you can stand in the presence of a holy God. Well, let's go back to 2 Samuel 6 and see perhaps the most significant aspect of this chapter. Not only is the ark itself significant in all those ways, but God is presented as holy and consecrated and set apart for his people. Look at uh, 2 Samuel 6, verse 3. They placed the ark of God on a new cart. Probably got that idea from the Philistines. Bad move. But they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ohio. Don't you love that? Ohio. I just love that. It's not Ohio. It's Ohio. Uh, I don't know why I like that. Uh, But anyway, I do. The sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. All those are, are, are uh, instruments you can walk with. You, you, you're strumming, you're doing the castanets, you're playing the tambourines, and you're singing, you're celebrating. This is movement music. They're moving, they're dancing. Um, harps, we get the wrong idea about harps. We think, because cre- what a harp is today is we take a, a piano and we turn it up on its side and you have all those strings. That's not, they, that's not the harp we're talking about here. These harps are like 10-stringed instruments, okay? The same kind of harp David played when he was going out and taking care of sheep. It's something you can throw over your shoulder and carry around and play. That's what they're doing here. They're they're celebrating. But then it happens. Verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out towards the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. 
And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Okay, what's going on? Uh, the ark. Go back in Leviticus, find out how big it is. It's, it's about two and a quarter feet wide, same depth, and about just a little over three feet long. This is not huge. Think footstool size, okay? This is the footstool of God. And it's made out of acacia wood, plated with gold, but it can't be that heavy. The only thing heavy in it is two stone, two tablets that have the Ten Commandments. And those were light enough for, you know, you've seen the movie, Moses, to carry him under his arm. So, this is not hard for, to tr- transport. It, it, it's not that this is big, that you need strong men to do it. It's just significant, the box. It's not a huge it's not an arduous task, it's a significant task that they, 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 are, they are about. And so they, 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 says they place this, this ark on a cart. There's nothing in the Bible that says you put it on a cart. But they do. And they place it on this cart, and they're, they're bouncing along, singing, dancing, celebrating all of the goodness of the ark coming into Jerusalem. And at some point, one of the oxen trips, stumbles, steps on a rock, we don't know what, but the cart shakes, it looks like the box is going to slide off, it would have been nothing for Uzzah to stick out his hand and just ride it, I mean, one man could have carried it, and so he does, and he dies, I didn't see that happening, did you? I bet nobody woke up that morning thinking, Somebody's probably going to die today touching the ark. I bet that thought was just not in their minds. It's, they could have been warned, but nobody was. Nobody really had that. And I, I doubt that Uzzah had any ill intent. He was, he was just wanting to keep it from falling and busting or breaking or disrespecting it. And yet he is judged for being irreverent. Does that make you angry? It did, David, verse 8. Does that make you afraid to approach God? It did, David, verse 9. Do you want to introduce this God to your friends? David didn't, verse 10. I don't even want to bring this God anywhere near my family and friends. I mean, this, this really shook him up. And David doesn't want to have any more to do with God for the next three months. Like, uh-uh. This is more than I bargained for. Very shook up. Now, how do, we, how do we understand it? Perhaps the problem is not God. You know, we like to blame God first. Perhaps the problem is us. Perhaps we're the callous ones. Perhaps we're the ones who are missing something here. And it's not God at all. It's, it's, it's kind of like, you, don't, you don't, just don't see how significant this is. It's, it's like spilling ketchup on you, somebody by accident. You don't, you don't see that that's a big deal. I was at a restaurant and picked up, we asked for ketchup for the fries, and I picked up ketchup. It was apparently been sitting by the stove or something. It was hot. And I just quickly shook it, you know, thinking you got to shake ketchup for it to come out. And when I did, the top just pew, took off because it was under compressed heat, you know, blew up on me all the way across the aisle to the people in the next booth. And they're looking at me like, what you doing? What, what? And I'm like, it's an accident. No big deal. It's on me too. This is my special shirt. It's been passed down for four generations. Oh, now it's a big deal. You see, just perspective helps us to see that maybe something's a little bit different. 
And when we look at the ark, something is a little bit different, and they should have gotten it. Look at back at Numbers chapter 4. And let's, let's go back over again just some of the things God told them about the ark. Ex- excuse me, Numbers chapter 4, verse 4. This is the work of the descendants of Kohath in the tent of meeting concerning the most holy things. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it and shall spread it, spread over it a cloth of pure blue, shall insert it uh, with pure blue, excuse me, and shall insert its poles. So they're getting ready to carry the ark. It says, now the way you do this is you cover it gently, nicely. You insert poles that's got rings on both sides. The priests are supposed to just pick it up and carry it. No cart. God's instructions was you, you carry this. It wasn't too heavy. You can handle this. No big deal. Maybe even when they put it on the new, the, uh, the new cart, maybe then God's blood began to boil. Or even before that, why are they following the example of the Philistines? Why don't they follow the law that I gave them in Leviticus? Why are they doing this? Why are they wanting to disregard and ignore my very specific instructions? Look at verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. And it goes on. Verse 17, then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, so these are very specific commands given. This is the way you do it. And if you do it this way, you will not die. The commands are given not to kill people. The commands were given here to keep people from getting hurt. To keep us from harm. Not to create harm. Notice the intent of God. God's intent is not to harm, but to protect. Um, Verse 19, But do this to them that they may live and not die. That was God's design. I don't want you to die. Verse 20, But they shall not go in to see the holy objects, even for a moment, or they will die. In other words, don't let anybody uncover the box. Only the priest are to see the mercy seat and apply the blood. Carry it. Carry it respectfully. Don't look at it. Don't touch it. Don't put it on a cart. And you won't die. I don't want you to die. That's God's intent. God didn't want them to perish. Uh, chapter 7, verse 9. Uh, but he, he did not give any to the sons of Kohath, because theirs was the service of the holy objects which they carried on the shoulder. So that's another just description. They, they could pick this thing up, put it on their shoulders, and walk. And that's the way it was supposed to be carried. Uh, God's rules were rules to avoid death. It, it reminds me of a rule everybody in this room has. And that rule is, if the oven is hot, what's the rule? Don't touch it. And what's the intent of that rule? To protect people, to save people from bad harm and hurt. And we teach that to every person that lives in our culture. If there's a fire, if there's an oven, if there's something hot, do not touch. I mean, kids are little, hot, 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 don't touch, don't touch. Now, if they reach out their hand and touch, what happens? They get burned. And that changes everything. Some are bad, badly burned. At that moment, we don't say, well, it's a parent's fault. They should have told them not. We did tell them not to touch. We have regret that they got badly hurt. But everybody knew the rules. That if you touch, you get burned. Why? It's the nature of heat to burn us. What we don't seem to get through to our hearts and minds is holiness 
is lethal. We don't know anybody holy. God says, I am holy. And this is a holy object. The very name of the Lord is here. If you come close to holiness, you will get burned. You touch it, you will die. That's just the way it is. The nature of holiness is to consume and to destroy sin. And God's just trying to protect. It's like, oh, wow. You know, the big problem is somebody shared a few weeks ago in society today is not that we're sinners. We're way too comfortable with sin. The big problem is God is holy, and we have to meet him one day. The big problem is how are you going to meet a holy God as a sinner? Because holiness is lethal. You will die. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not die. Only through faith in Christ can you live. The reason is because holiness is lethal. The people of God saw that in the Old Testament. We need to see it as well. And just in case, just in case, you think, hey, this is just an Old Testament thing. I don't have to worry. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You look in the New Testament real quick, and you see in Uzzah fashion, Acts chapter 5, right after Christ's resurrection, the New Testament church is taken off. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We don't share it very often, but there it is. In Acts chapter 5, um, a man named Ananias comes, and uh, verse, verse 4, when, it, when it, he's, he's sold land, he says he, he's given all of the money to the church. Um, verse 4, uh, Peter says, And it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? I mean, you have to do this. After it was sold, it was under your control. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. What happened? And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Dead. Like that. As a fashion. Reached out and said, I'm going to just, I'm going to pull one over on God. I'm going to lie to God. God says, no, you're not. And you're dead. And then his wife, three hours later, comes in. Verse 9, and she dies. They've already buried the dad or the husband. Now they bury her. She dies. 1 Corinthians, we're going to have to deal with this in a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord's Supper. Verse 27 says, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 11, verse 27, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. A man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Whoever eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body Rightly, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, meaning die. People die who take the Lord's Supper wrong. It's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Just as you die if you deal with the ark wrong. The Lord's Supper is a sacred item that God has given us, given the church. The church has the Lord's Supper and the church has baptism. And God says, don't play with this. This, this is in the Holy of Holies. This is in the realm of, of, of sacred where, where God's holiness dwells to such an extent that if you play with this, you will die. Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31. Again, Hebrews saying one of the things we need to realize is that our God is the same. And this God who was lethal in the Old Testament is still lethal in the New Testament. I know why God's not letting me teach Hebrews. I can't ever find it. Hebrews 10, 26 says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment 
and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Do you ever just keep on sinning willfully? You know you're sinning and you just keep on doing it? God says, you want to die? Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three. Think about the law of Moses being in the ark. You disrespect this, you're disrespecting what's in it. Verse 29, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he, has, he was sanctified and was insulting the Spirit of grace? There you see, you think it was bad in the Old Testament. It gets worse in the New Testament because not only could you trample stuff in the Old Testament was holy, now you can trample Jesus. You think it was bad then, God gets more furious now. And he also brings up the Holy Spirit, you know, the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. There's things that can kill you. Um, Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He says, if you understand the holiness of God, you know you do not want to go there unless you've been sprinkled by the blood. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Don't you dare go into his presence without being covered by his blood. Trusting in Jesus is not a suggestion. It is an absolute necessity or you will die. It's a terrifying thing to come before God with no covering. Only thing that covers us is the blood of Christ. Well, back in 2 Samuel chapter 6, let me just finish it real quick. Verse 12, uh, they begin to realize Edom, who has the ark, man, he's being blessed. It's like buying a stock that never goes down. It just goes up and up and up and up. And they finally come and tell David, don't you want this thing? You get nothing but blessing if you do it right. David says, okay. And he goes, and he gets it. And they bring it in to Jerusalem, and they do it right this time. They don't put it on a cart. It says, mentions there, verse 13, and so it was when the bearers of the ark, they're carrying it now, they're bearing it, on the poles, on the shoulders. They're doing it right. Verse 14, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting, with sound of trumpet. Then it happened, verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michal, the daughter of Saul, don't miss that phrase, daughter of Saul, she's described that way three times, and the reason she's described that way is she's not the wife of David in this author's mind. She's the daughter of Saul. Saul. She's old school. She's old king, old regime. She's not submissive to David. She's not respectful of David. She's not part of the new kingdom. She's part of the old, and it's causing all kinds of problems. Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Not a good thing for a wife to ever do with her husband. She needs to respect him. She's not respecting him. David keeps on dancing, bringing, bringing the ark in. Verse 20, uh, when, and, but when David returned uh, to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Saul. So he's out there dancing. said, man, isn't this so cool? I need to go tell my family. Comes in, she meets him. The daughter of Saul came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself to death. Sarcastic. He uncovered himself to the day Today, in the eyes of his servants, maids, as one of the foolish ones, shamelessly uncovers himself. It's like, man, what I'm seeing you do out the window is like, like, like something you see at the strip club. It's like you're out there with the belly dancers and the castanets, and you're dancing, and you're pulling off clothes, and it's just, it's just disgraceful. That's what she's seeing. And she tells him that. David's got an answer. Verse 21, David said to McCall, it was before the Lord. So I wasn't dancing for the girls. I don't care what you think. I was dancing for the Lord. Who chose me above your father. See, new kingdom, new reign, 
not your dad. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people uh, of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate again before the Lord. So I'm not doing this for the girls. I'm doing this for God. That was his clear intent, verse 22. And I will be more lightly esteemed than this. In other words, if you think this is shameful, I'll be more shameful as long as I get to worship God. And will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken with them, I will be distinguished. Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So it's like a judgment. She will not bear children because she doesn't get it. She's trying to do what the Pharisees in the New Testament were doing, and that was always put uh, new wine into old wineskins. She was trying to, to maintain the dignity of her dad, to try, maintain the rules of her dad, the old kingdom. Uh, but there's a new king in town. There's a new ark. There's a new city. There's a new um, holiness that's coming into this place. And David is saying, that's what we need to celebrate and be excited. This needs to be before God. If you understand the significance of moving the ark here, it, it, it would get you moving. You would be moved. You would be dancing. You would be rejoicing. You would be singing. You would be celebrating. It, it, it is something so moving that, yes, it's got us all moving and it looks like loud and sensuous and all of this is going on, but does God ever move you like that? David said, that's what's happening. This is before the Lord. God is the one who has us so joyous and happy and excited because we get the significance of a God who is with us who wants to redeem us, whose redemption is eternal. David finally got it, and he got there. So perhaps the application for us is, do we really get God that deeply and well that it moves us to joyful, joyful, we adore him. What a God we serve. How wonderful is our God to want to be with us and to make provision for our sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your truth. We need revelation. We need to understand who you are because you're not like us. You've made us in your image, but we have sinned and have not tasted holiness except through the blood of Christ. Fathers, help us to see the seriousness of our sin. Help us to dance when we hear it can be forgiven. Help us to rejoice when a God like you comes and offers us mercy and grace. Lord, may we truly be moved to celebrate and be joyful in your presence. May we see the great privilege it is to come before you without dying, and to live, and to live forevermore. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.